praise team for leading us in singing the confession of the church, for raising our voices in high praise to our God and King. It's uh, a pleasure for my family and I to be here this morning, worshiping with you, and uh, we look very much forward to meeting with the many, looks like all, each one of you. We've heard a lot about Grace Life Church of Edmonton. Uh, we have dear friends that we met at seminary who attended here prior to going to CMS in California, and they told us, and particularly Genevieve told Anne, so many great things about this church in the countryside. This church that enjoyed and treasures gathering around the Word of God each and every week. And so, hearing these songs, these anthems that are so familiar to us from Grace Community Church in, in California, and now being here and hearing the same, the same anthem, it has, it's already been such a blessing to our hearts this morning. And I'm truly thankful for the invitation to come here and bring the Word of God you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. In the early 1980s, the U.S. Army coined the slogan, Be all that you can be, join the Army. And many citizens enlisted. They, they saw this as a great opportunity for them towards fulfilling their job potential. The Army offered career training through education and uh, even including a GI Bill, which offered money for college. And all of this under the personal benefit of disciplined training. And it was the 80s. It was a time of relative peace. Rather than actual military service, many people had self-improvement and self-promotion in mind. But the political climate of the 1990s changed all that, and the Gulf War began. Those who had hoped to get this military training, this job training really, entering to the job market, found themselves requiring to serve under wartime conditions. And all of this according to the fine print in that little contract that they had signed. Being all that you can be quickly lost much of its appeal for many people. Not all, but many. When another agenda clashes with one's own personal agenda, problems quickly arise. Self-serving motives were opposed to the motives of serving one's country. And initially, people had signed up under the Army's terms, but they more desired their own terms. And we see in this illustration a parallel, a connection to Matthew's narrative that we will read and Jesus' teaching to his disciples. 
we see Jesus' teaching clash with his disciples' perspective, and this requires the Lord to issue the demands of discipleship. The terms, really, for being one of his disciples. Jesus corrects them in order to provide them the proper understanding of discipleship, while also providing a warning for us for not heeding his imperative. A little context here will be helpful. Do a quick 30,000-foot flyover of Matthew's Gospel, and we'll land in chapter 16 and then move on from there. So Matthew's purpose for writing this Gospel is to present Jesus of Nazareth as Israel's long-awaited Messiah and royal king. And we see this in verses 16 and 19 of Matthew chapter 16. This lends heavy support to this purpose. Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, in verse 16. And then in verse 19, we see the king seeking kingdom declaration. So Christ as king is a very fitting theme for the entire gospel of Matthew. And he writes this to strengthen the faith of Jewish believers, while at the same time using 60-plus Old Testament quotes as an apologetic tool for evangelizing the Jewish people. Now, we could break the, the gospel itself into a number of different categories, and we see this in the first four chapters, we learn of the king's advent. And so, beginning with the genealogy, the birth narrative, worship of the king, and then moving on to the announcement by the forerunner, his baptism, his temptation, and then ultimately his calling of the disciples. And then in chapters 5 through 9, we learn of the king's authority. We hear the Sermon on the Mount preached primarily to his disciples, and also witness many miracles authenticating Jesus' authority. In chapters 10 through 12, we see the king's agenda is given to us. The commissioning of the twelve takes place, and we learn more of the mission of this king. And then we come to the portion where our text finds us today. The king's adversaries are presented in chapters 13 through 17. And the kingdom's parables are given. They include teachings of worldliness, and deceit, tares, leaven, and bad fish. And also, we see conflict arise between religious leaders and Jesus. The Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees are introduced to us. And it's right in this portion where the adversaries are being presented, we hear Peter's confession. He says to Jesus, you are the Christ. And his words mark a major division in this gospel and in each of the synoptic gospels. You see, prior to Peter's confession, Jesus' ministry revolves around Galilee. And then Peter confesses the Christ, and it's at this time that Jesus then resolutely turns his attention towards Jerusalem and the ultimate fulfillment 
uh, the reason for his first advent. His attention is now fixed, now will be fixed upon the place where he will lay down his life on behalf of sinful man. And this morning we'll focus on verses 24 through 27 of chapter 16. But I'll begin reading in verse 21 to provide a little extra necessary context for this morning's service. We see in these verses that, and I'd like you to notice this, by the way, notice that Jesus speaks to the matters of not only his first advent in this portion of text, but also to his second advent. So we see his first advent mentioned in verse 21, and then his second advent in the first we read in verse 27. And it's also here that we hear Peter's opposition to the Lord. And this is ultimately what causes Jesus to preach and to teach these demands to his disciples. And his teaching helps to develop for us this picture of true discipleship, its characteristics and its demands. And yet, being a disciple, we need to know, is not without decision-making, not without choice on our behalf. And we'll see that as we read through the text. Decision-making and choice are inherent to discipleship. We see that in verse 23. So let's, let's read this. Let's read the text and then continue. Starting in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is, is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and will then repay every man according to submit to you that in Matthew 16, 24 through 27, the Lord Jesus provides his disciples with four necessary traits of discipleship so that you can know the demands of discipleship. So we'll see four necessary traits of discipleship so that you can know the demands of discipleship. And if you're a note taker, the outline I'll follow is as such. First, 
will learn of the practice of the disciple of Christ. In verse 24. And second, the preoccupation of the one following Christ. In verse 25. Then we'll learn of the price of Christian discipleship. In verse 26. And finally, the prospects of following after Christ. In verse 27. So that's the practice preoccupation, the price, and the prospect. The first learn of the practice of the disciple of Christ. Looking again at our text this morning, verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So three imperatives follow immediately after Jesus' rebuke of Peter. And this he does to correct his disciple, as Peter is really the spokesman for all the disciples. Discipleship, we need to define this term. So discipleship means to follow after a teacher. Because of an acceptance of that teacher's teaching, essentially. Discipleship, or a disciple, promotes and helps spread that teacher's teaching. And the disciple will also follow after the pattern of living that the teacher presents. And so we, we can read more, we can learn a biblical definition directly from Matthew's Gospel in chapter 10 where he describes discipleship in this way. He says, A student is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and a slave like his master. So there's an element of subjection in discipleship. This is not partial, not half-hearted commitment, but this is being fully committed. And it involves not remaining silent, but rather telling others of what they have learned from their teacher. We, we learn more about this, again, back in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 27, where Jesus speaks directly about telling others. And he says, What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ears, proclaim upon the housetops. So there's a, a willingness and a boldness of the disciple. And the disciple is without fear and without shame. Because he's in perfect alignment with his teacher. The teacher and the student are in perfect alignment. And thus, the text that we just read here presents us with a problem. And that is that Peter, for a moment, is out of alignment with his teacher. When he says, God forbid it, Lord. Right? Jesus has just told him what the redemptive plan is, is going to be in his first advent. He says he needs to go and suffer and then die and then be raised again. And Peter's not in agreement with that. This gives, he gives in to the tempter for a moment and expresses a plan B opposed to the divine plan in verse 21. Now Jesus exposes the adversary and he also exposes Peter's sin when he says, Get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. 
don't, these three imperatives are necessary. They're necessary to show the demands of proper practice in discipleship. Now, we need to admit right off the bat that these are hard sayings. And there are many other hard sayings directly pertaining to discipleship, to following after Christ. This is not a come-as-you-are type of discipleship. This is not a do-as-you-wish type of discipleship. No, in fact, you need to lay self aside in order that you can have your mind and your heart fully in subjection to the teaching, fully in subjection to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so obedience is required, and his commands are not easy. Listen to some of these commands in Matthew's Gospel again. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 5 verse 44. Hate your sin. In fact, pluck it out or cut it off. 5 and 29 and 30. Forgive. 6 verses 14 and 15. Treasure God with all your heart. In 6.21. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. 6.33. And do not judge others. 7 verse 1. All of those rail against self-interest. They're fueled by our sin nature. It's no wonder that so many pretenders, as Jesus said, will say to him, Lord, Lord, but to whom Jesus will say, I never knew you. You know those words. You're familiar with them. So what kind of treatment then? If that's the way we are to conduct ourselves in obeying his commands, then what kind of treatment should the disciple expect as he goes through life. Well, again, Matthew has a lot to say about this. And I invite you to turn just a few chapters back to chapter 10, where Jesus describes the treatment that we can expect. Picking up in verse 16, where he says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will scourge you in their synagogues, and you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Brother will betray brother to death, and father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, and it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. This was the instructions that Jesus gave to his disciples as he sent them out. And then again, we can read more, starting again in verse 34, when he says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will become members of his household. Sorry. And a, a man's enemies 
will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. And so the way we can expect to be treated as disciples is really antithetical to the world's narrative of self-preservation. There's a self-preservation mode that is a part of the sin nature. But we know that discipleship is not a life of ease. In fact, the worthy disciple places nothing ahead of Christ in his life. Now, in verse 24, we see a short little conditional statement here that's like it's everyone in the world history, really. When Jesus says, if anyone wishes to, well, pistol move, come after me, it was a preposition followed by a personal pronoun. This is a grammatical construction that harkens all the way back to chapter 4, verse 19, when Jesus calls the disciples to follow me. He says, follow after me. He uses the exact same grammatical construction. But how? How does one follow Christ? That's the question this morning, really. How do we follow Christ? Well, the first command that we see is that we need to deny ourselves. To deny oneself. Matthew Henry called self-denial the first lesson in to disown oneself. This is a verb that's reflexive, so not only is the subject doing the action, but the subject is also receiving the action. The subject does the denial and also receives the denial himself. And this is unlike Peter's denial, as you're familiar with. Peter's, in Peter's denial, Jesus was the recipient of his denial. He was the recipient of his action. Unlike Peter, it's putting loyalty to Christ before one's self-preservation. So this is a wholehearted denial of one's own will in favor of following after the will of God. So we need to remember now verse 23 as well, where Jesus asks, Are you setting your mind on God's interests or man's? a rejection, a rejection of self-will and self-sufficiency, and at the same time, the disciple is unconcerned with self-esteem or self-promotion, all these things so propagated in our world today. There is one thing, however, that the disciple is very concerned about, and that is possessing a proper self-image. This is language that really back to Genesis. We're created in the image and likeness of God. And so the disciples strive for Christ's likeness, for imitating and proclaiming Christ. Now this comes with no guarantees of health or wealth. 
This is not a life on easy street by any means. But rather, it's a life filled with hardships. It's not easy, but it, it is rewarding. You know, I think maybe one of the places that I've, I myself have, have witnessed my own difficulty and self-denials in evangelism, in times of evangelistic opportunity, when I see somebody walking up to me and I think, how will what I say be received? Or how will I be perceived? Or what's this going to cost me having this conversation? How is this going to impact me and affect me, right? Very self-centered kind of thinking. But Jesus says, no, you are to deny yourself. And then he, this leads right into the second imperative. Take up your cross. Now, we've already seen that following after Christ comes with many hardships, comes with tribulations, comes with afflictions and persecutions. But listen to Jesus' pastoral words to his disciples in the upper room discourse in the book of John. And he says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. John 15, 18. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. 16, verse 20. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. 16, verse 33. So the cross here that Jesus is referring to is really a metaphorical cross. It doesn't necessarily mean that each one of us is going to have to hang on a cross and die, but rather... It implies us a suffering even unto death, right? And this being the result of us following after Christ. Criminals, did you know, were made to bear this heavy crossbeam. And so it was placed on their shoulders, and then they had to carry it all the way to the place of their execution. And Jesus, as we know in the Gospels, he went through this same predicament. The cross beam laid upon him, and he carried it to the place of his death. Now, the disciple, on the other hand, is, is asked to do this also, and do so willingly, out of a loyal association to Christ. So this discipleship is really a life of potential martyrdom. It doesn't mean necessarily that we'll be killed, we need to be prepared to go all the way if that's what the Lord requires. Why? Why could this happen? Well, if we think back to the Upper Room Discourse, it's because this world has hated our Lord and Savior first. The Lord has hated, or the world has hated Christ first. Now, I'm sure many of you are familiar with this popular idiom People say, you know, talking about throwing someone under the bus, right? You've heard this. This is really an expression that exposes the abounding attitude of self-preservation in our world, if you think about it, right? It's in our society, and it's even in our hearts, right? People are all too willing to redirect hurt and harm that is coming their way and to redirect it to someone else. But this is never the Christian's practice, ever, right? We deny ourselves, take up our 
provide and follow him. Paul provides a beautiful commentary on the resolve that's needed to take up one's cross. In Galatians 2 and verse 20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. So third, there's this practical demand, right, of following him. We've already heard that we need to deny ourselves, take up one's cross, and now follow me. And by follow me, we're talking about a life of obedience to Christ. In the context of obedience to God's word, John wrote, The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. That's John 3.16. Christ's disciples do not turn to the left or to the right, for we know, again, that no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. This is a, a life of resolute following, resolute obedience. Take a self-examination here as an order for each one of us. Are you denying yourself daily? Or are you very much living for yourself daily? When presented with the opportunity to proclaim the gospel to someone, are you taking that opportunity? Or are you shrinking back, perhaps out of fear, out of a rejection that you perceive might take place. Maybe you feel awkward, fearful in some way. Is your mind then set on God's interests? Or is your mind fixated on your own interests? Two years ago at the Shepherds Conference, Mark Dever said something that has stuck with me. And um, to a crowd of 3,500 plus men, he asked this question. He said, how many of you men are actively discipling another young man in your lives? Or maybe other young men in your lives? And not, I, I would apply this not only to discipling, but to evangelizing. Are we taking the opportunity to evangelize others as well? How many of you are taking that opportunity? Well, what Dever said next is really what has stuck with me. He said something to this effect, and I have to paraphrase because I didn't write it down word for word. But he said something like this. If you claim to be a follower of Christ yet are not actively discipling or making disciples, then I question your understanding of being a follower of Jesus Christ. For me, that was profound. If following after Christ is a life of obedience, then obedience to his commission his great commission is obviously very necessary. And we see this illustrated Peter and John in the book of Acts. When they were commanded not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And by the way, those days will be coming to us here as well. They'll be coming just as much to my home province of Manitoba as they'll come right to Edmonton here. Where we'll be told, you cannot say those things. take heart in Peter and John's response. Their response was, we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard, Acts 4, verses 18 and 20. 
they were committed to a life of wholehearted obedience. And there was clear evidence of that as they went forth and proclaimed the gospel to whoever would hear. So, friends, I know that these same opportunities abound for us as well. And we need to, as disciples of Christ, take every opportunity. Is this your consistent practice? of the true disciple in verse 24, we need to move along to the preoccupation of Christ's disciples in verse 25. I'm picking up the text again in chapter 16. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Verse 25. Now, Jesus' statement here is, seems self-contradicting. It's a paradox, really. Right? What does it mean? For the Lord to say, saving your life, will, if you'll lose it, or losing your life, then you will, by losing your life, you'll find it. I, I think a, a really good way to consider this text is by way of illustration. And so let me illustrate this to you just in a, in a little um, write-up here. Now this, this, is what, this is really an excerpt from a letter written by Adoniram Judson in 1810. And he wrote to Anne Hasselheim's father about his intention to marry his young daughter. And he did this even as he had every intention to go overseas to, to become a missionary in Burma. And listen carefully to what Judson wrote to Hasselheim's father. He writes, I have now to ask whether you can consent part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to hardship and suffering in the missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insults, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness, brightened with the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Savior from heathens saved? through her means, from eternal woe and despair? I'd assume there are some fathers here who have given away their daughters. Did you receive a letter such as that? That letter really demonstrates not one, but three hearts, really. The heart of Judson himself, the heart of the father in response to saying, yes, it was Anne's decision to make and Anne's decision to follow after Adoniram, really his desire to become a missionary. She gave up all comforts and enjoyments here. She sacrificed her affection to relatives and friends and went to where God, in his providence, saw fit to place her. They left for Burma in 1813. 
was 24, she was 23. They had three children, all nearly passed away. The last child, the third child, lived up till the age of two years old and was preceded in death even by Anne by six months. And Judson lived there for 38 years, coming back to America only for the first time after being there for 33 years. I believe he never saw his father again in his life. Whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. Now I realize that God has not called us each to that kind of a mission or ministry. But we must ask ourselves, are we prepared to do something like that? Following after Christ while proclaiming Him should dominate our mind, really. It should dominate the mind of the disciple to the exclusion, even to the desires of our own will. One author, he described Judson in this way. He said, he was a seed that fell into the ground and died again and again for the sake of Christ. The realities of death and peril and injury and suffering did not deter and shouldn't deter us. The life of ease and <clears throat> of comfort, excuse me, life of ease and comfort should be less appealing to us. One commentator correctly articulates about verse 25 in Matthew's Gospel this principle when he says, it's not that the person actually loses his life here. As long as he has lost his will to spare his life in some pleasure. And that's really the way we need to approach it. The disciples' preoccupation is willingly sacrificial. And he places his own preservation, there's a preoccupation with placing one's own preservation um, to the side rather than having it dominate. of the disciple. Third, the Christ of discipleship. And we read in verse 26, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Two questions here establish the Christ of discipleship for us. They present us with choices, really. How does one gain the whole world? world. The world is a biblical concept, and it really refers to pursuing aspects that are common to human existence. Earthly joys, possessions, cares, and worldly and human affairs. All of this among people who are alienated and opposed to God. That's how the world is described in Scripture. Now, True, our lives are spent in this fallen world, but the follower of Christ does not seek worldly riches and godless pleasures, nor the folly of making those of central importance. Rather, the man who walks according to the course of this world is said to be uh, already dead, and he's said to be under the power of the evil one. We read about that in 
Ephesians 2 and then again in 1 John 5. But the question for us is, can gaining the world, can gaining what the world offers benefit your eternal soul in any way? Can gaining the, what the world offers benefit your eternal soul in any way? According to Jesus, the answer is no. We see that gaining one results in the forfeiture of the other. So we have contrasting options here. This is not win-win. Now, we need to understand that the soul is as well. It's the seat of human will, desires, and affections. And if one's affections are set on the world, then that in itself is its reward. We see this demonstrated in Scripture. It's the hypocrites who stand on the street corners seeking prestige. But we learn from Jesus that these accolades that they receive for their self-aggrandizing behavior is really their full reward in Matthew 6.25. And we also see the rich young ruler chasing after the things of the world, and he goes away sad because of his love for worldly possessions, really amounting to idolatry. He couldn't follow after Jesus. So we know that the half-hearted, then, cannot follow Jesus. The disciple uh, is opposite to this. While the one who does not follow after Christ grieves over the thought of surrendering worldly gains, the disciple of Christ knows that to lose one's life ultimately results in one's finding it. What then does discipleship look like? What does this discipleship look like? Remember when Peter said, Behold, I have left everything and followed you. And the disciple's reward for leaving everything to follow Christ is found again in Matthew 19 and verses 28 through 30. Jesus talks about those rewards. He says, they will sit on thrones. They will receive in multiples. They will inherit eternal life. And the last shall be first. So it's true that we can pursue and even gain aspects of this world, which can lead to our comfort. And even, in some ways, it can bring us some protection from certain hardships. And you could even appease sinful man to prevent or avoid persecution. But we need to listen to Paul and his words in Romans chapter 8 when he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. With perseverance we will wait eagerly for it. Are there aspects of this world that you're pursuing? 
that are taking precedence over your discipleship of Christ, absolute possessions, and we can list a whole long list of them. Maybe it's prestige. Maybe it's a position in this world, a status of some sort, a career, influence. Maybe it's entertainment that you find yourself more interested in investing time in other people. Maybe it's leisure. Maybe it's just taking time to yourself. These can all be gained easily by us, but at what price? We have to consider that. At what price? Many of these things I realize, that we can have them in our lives, and it doesn't detract necessarily from our discipleship. But we must, however, examine them. What can it cost us? If you know your heart, and other people see your heart in your actions and in your words, so we must pray diligently, asking God to reveal the things that compete with discipleship, that compete our allegiance to Christ. Ultimately, we want well done, good and faithful service. So, in those verses, those first three verses that we've looked at, we learned the practice, the preoccupation, and the price of discipleship. Finally, the prospect of discipleship. In verse 27, For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father and with His angels, and then repay every man according to his deeds. Now, by prospect, I mean, what is your expectation of the second advent of Christ, according to the promise of the events surrounding his return? You see, the, the final three of the four verses that I'm speaking on this morning are really eschatological in nature. They look forward. Consider what's going to happen in the future. And so we need to see, make two observations here, two key details regarding the second advent of Christ. First is that his return is imminent. And second, he comes with recompense. He will repay both believer and unbeliever, both the disciple and the one who is not the disciple of Christ. Now, in this verse, we see a Greek term, melee, and this emphasizes, this term emphasizes the inevitability of the Lord's return from his heavenly home. This, this term is used by the gospel writer to denote the action that necessarily follows divine decree. And we see this in two other places, really. We see this in... Matthew 17, 12, when we read, so the Son of Man will certainly suffer. There's an inevitability based on divine decree. And again, in Matthew 17, 22, when we read, the Son of Man is about to be delivered over or betrayed. Again, this is something that will happen. It's inevitable. And it's because of what God has planned. This verse here, Verse 27 could literally be rendered, For the Son of Man is about to come in the glory of His Father with His angels. So not only is there an inevitability here, but there's also a sense of necessity. This is something that needs to take place. 
was a disciple of Christ, awaiting this comes with a sense of anticipation. But it also comes with a sense of urgency. And we need to remember that the disciple of Christ spreads the doctrine that Jesus has taught. Right? That's what a disciple does, following after the pattern of his living and making sure to proclaim all that he has taught. Because the lost, they need to hear. And so the follower of Christ looks ahead eagerly, anticipating this, these two promises, really, and their fulfillment. The promise of his return, and then secondly, the second promise, that he will repay every man according to his deeds. The Lord will give to each one that which he is due, or that which he has earned.
of a disciple denies himself by pouring contempt on every selfish word, every selfish thought, every selfish action. It's really not my will, but thy will be done. And the disciple is willing to suffer and even to die for the sake of Christ. The disciple practices loyal obedience to Christ while at the same time proclaiming Christ to those who need to hear it, both to encourage souls and to win souls. And the disciple's preoccupation is not inward, but rather selflessly outward for the sake of others. He comes to Christ with his soul surrendered unconditionally and remains fixated not on the present, but anticipating the future arrival of the King and the ultimate culmination of God's redemptive plan in history. Following after Christ is the only way that you can truly be all you can be. Thank you for this time you're with.